also have the sole advantage over all mankind to be those who can say, I rejoice in hope of the glory of God. You're listening to a sermon series titled Romans, preached at Shoreline Church. For more audio or theological content, please visit thisisshoreline.com. Well, let's open our Bibles to Romans chapter 5. We're going to be reading from verses 1 through 5 from the English Standard Version. Romans 5.1, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Lord, we ask now that you would illuminate this text, that you'd bring glory to the Son, that you would transform us from the inside out. Lord, do a spiritual work of grace as we study this text. We pray that lives would be impacted, hearts would be transformed that we'd be sanctified as we participate in the work that your Holy Spirit is doing. Lord, give us ears that would hear and hearts that would respond. So be at work, we pray. We invite you to do that work in us. And all God's people together said, amen. Well, we come this morning to one of the greatest sections, arguably in all the scriptures, Romans chapter 5. Martin Luther said, in the whole Bible, there is hardly another chapter which can equal this triumphant text. What a joy to come to this pivotal passage, which is a crucial turning point in the book of Romans. So many people believe that right here in chapter 5, with the big word, therefore, that Paul is now shifting gears from his early diatribe, his early argument that began all the way back We've been studying for months, Romans chapter 1, verse 17, where he began to unpack what the righteousness of God is that has been revealed from heaven. And up until this point, he has been using a lot of you's and a lot of I's. But when we come to the end of Romans 4, in fact, take your eyes and glance up or swipe back to verse 23, and notice that Paul drops the pronouns you and I for some new ones. Look at verse 23. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. The book of Romans, beginning in chapter 5, arguably, with therefore, is now addressing a new people, a covenant people, a people who, who are united with Christ in his death and resurrection. So earlier, remember this, Paul had quoted Habakkuk 2.4, explaining that the just shall live by faith. And some people argue, and I agree, that in the early chapters leading up to chapter 5, Paul has been explaining how the just are made just. But starting here in chapter 5, and then in chapter 6 and 7 and 8, he gives us 
how the just shall live. And so we have the just shall live by faith. And this is what we have ultimately because our sins have been forgiven and we're justified uh, and made right with the Father, declared righteous because of the work of the Son. So what I want to do this morning is kind of begin this um, text with a bit of an illustration. Uh, We love foster and adoptive families here at Shoreline. We love the work that Bridge of Life is doing in our community. We have lots of foster families, and many of you have adopted children. And so we we think that's such a glorious picture of the gospel. Uh, And so I want to kind of paint a scenario for you, because I, I think this may help set this up and illustrate what Paul is getting at in this section. I want you to imagine with me that there is kind of two families. Uh, One wants to put their child up for um, fostering or adoption, uh, and the second wants to adopt that child. So just picture with me for a minute that the first family has a beautiful teen girl who's 13 years old, and her family, the family that she is being adopted out of, uh, is the, the worst case scenario. I just want you to picture drug abuse, addiction, selfishness, emotional trauma. Uh, it's, it's the worst of the worst you can imagine, right? And lots, sadly, lots of people in Manatee County are in that situation, and the foster care system is, is at capacity, I think. It, it, it's a great need that we need to step in and help. Now, the adopting family, by contrast, is unbelievably awesome. Just picture with me for a minute a family of Christ followers who love and respect their four children. Two of them are teenagers, two of them are younger. And at mealtime, they actually, imagine this, they actually make meals together. Remember that where you didn't have to order it uh, and gets delivered? They actually made meals together. They sit down, not in front of the television, but they sit down and they, they discuss the day and have engaging discussions around the table. They have family worship where they study the Bible and they um, talk about the gospel. They also work together on homework. They are actually learning Spanish to better minister to some of their neighbors. As a family, they take long and relaxing vacations and build these new experiences together, but they also have taken one of their vacations and turned it into a short-term trip to support missionaries. Uh, Not only do they do family worship, they also have hilarious and fun game nights. They do dance parties, and they love to laugh and relate and even cry and care for one another. So just imagine this 13-year-old girl in her previous family, her previous life, is now adopted into this new incredible family. But on the day she walks in the door, she beelines it up the stairs to her room, shuts the door, locks it, and spends the rest of the day corralled in her room. And just imagine with me for a minute, the mom of the family concerned going up and kind of knocking and then eventually getting the door open, only to find this newly adopted child sitting on her phone all day long, having gone on Amazon to try to shop for clothing for herself. She tried to have dinner delivered through DoorDash so she'd have something to eat that night. She's taken time to arrange a ride to school in the morning through Uber, and she didn't succeed but tried to find a way to hack into Disney Plus so she could have something to entertain herself with that night. In her troubled mind, this girl erroneously thought or believed that her adoption was something that solely affected her legal status. On paper, she's not wrong. On paper, her rights went from one home to another, but she failed to realize that there was so much more. 
She was living like a stranger in a new home, but the truth was she had been welcomed into an amazing family that included many more blessings beyond just a name change or a legal status change. How foolish for her to try to conjure up food and clothing and entertainment and transportation from her own resources when all she needed was way more than provided for her if she would just receive it. You see, church, what we have because of the work of Christ is indeed a change in our legal standing. We are not justified before the Father, but there's much, much more. In this chapter and in Romans 6, 7, and 8, we now turn our attention from uh, how we are justified to now how our justification impacts our sanctification. In other words, how the past finished work of Christ continues to impact our current and future lives. One of the questions we ask of our new members is, what is the gospel? And we want to make sure you understand and can explain it. But a follow-up question is, and how is the gospel impacting your life today? And that is ultimately what we're going to see a big part of these first five verses And we're going to see in our text today uh, what we now experience as Christians, what John Stott calls blissful consequences. I like that. Blissful consequences. So if you're taking note, we're going to see three things that we have in our justification. Number one, we have peace, verse one. We have, secondly, privilege. And that's kind of a trigger word today. So we'll get a right perspective of that, uh, privilege. And then thirdly, we will see in verses three through five that we have the blissful consequence of perspective. So let's look at verse 1, and of course, I told you it begins with a huge transitional word, therefore. Uh, Notice it says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So notice with me what Paul says we first have because of our right standing with the Father, because we have placed our faith in Jesus who died in our place and who rose again for us. He says we have peace with God. Now, you might be new to Christianity. Maybe you're a new believer. Maybe you don't, you haven't been churched. And so this is a new concept for you. I don't, or maybe you're old school. I don't want you to misunderstand what Paul means here when he says the word peace. Don't confuse the having peace with God as having the peace of God. Does that make sense? These are two totally different concepts. So the peace that Paul is describing here is not a feeling you experience It's a fact that you enjoy. We know that the Hebrew word for peace is shalom. It kind of means wholeness or fullness. And this is not what he's referring to as far as I have peace. I have the peace of God when I'm afraid. So I'm afraid that my kids are going to be going to college and what are they going to experience? And I just need God's peace. That's not what he's referring to here. When Paul says we have peace with God, different preposition, he's pointing out, listen, our justification and our reconciliation go together. I want to explain this for a minute because I don't know if this makes sense to to really drive it home that we now have a new thing when we talk about having peace with God. So let me just describe this for a minute. There are only two cosmic kingdoms. There is the true kingdom that we call the kingdom of God, which of course is the rule, the reign, and the realm of Christ the King. Jesus is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. Uh, He is king over all creation. He created all things in heaven and on earth. And any other lesser sovereign uh, is ultimately under his rule and reign and realm. They're under his dominion. He has complete authority being distinct from creation. He has complete dominion over all. 
He, he as a king is eternal, but he entered time, space, race, and place and became a man incarnate as a baby. This king taught about his kingdom. He demonstrated his kingdom. He revealed his kingdom and he suffered and died to be crowned the true king, the true king who vanquished all of his foes through his own crucifixion. But we know the good news is that he rose again triumphantly and conquered the final enemy, which is death, which had plagued all of creation since the fall. So you and I become citizens of this kingdom, not by birthright, but by repenting of our sin, trusting Christ for our salvation. And the scripture says we're born again from above and we're made right with the king. So when you're made right with the king, you now have all the blessings and the benefits of his kingdom. And you're now, as you look around, you're now a part of a new kingdom people, a, a new people who are advancing his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. Right? We know that. We know that. That's pretty clear. But there's a second kingdom. There is another kingdom. It is a corrupted, diabolical kingdom that stands in absolute opposition to the kingdom of Christ. Now, it goes by different names. You can call it Rome. You can call it Babylon, self, Satan. But the agenda of the other kingdom is all the same. It's resist, defy, and war against the kingdom of heaven. It takes different forms. Pursue selfish desires or in hubris and vanity, exalt yourself to the throne or engaging the flesh or the world system to achieve your greatness and glory. But see, the battle in the mountain garden of Eden was seemingly won by the diabolical kingdom. It seemed to have won. But we get a glimpse there in the curse that there was a big defeat coming in a future battle, that the seed of the woman was going to come and crush this diabolical kingdom. And we know that that defeat happened in what I call the battle of Gethsemane and the battle of Mount Calvary. Now, because of the fall, because of Adam's fall, all of mankind is by nature, by default, a citizen of the corrupt and false kingdom. And, and so that means that you, in your natural state, uh, even though the world tells you, Oprah tells you, you're wonderful, you're amazing, and you are, you're, you're great. But the scripture tells you that you're depraved and that you're at enmity with the king. So as awesome as you are, as awesome as I am, we are by nature, the scripture says, Ephesians 2, 3, we're dead in our sins and we are by nature children of wrath. That we were following the course of this world, the prince, there's a kingly term, the prince of the power of the air. And so we in our natural state might think that we're all that in a bag of Fritos, but we are hostile enemies of the king, the omnipotent creator. And because we cannot truly defy the one true God, all who oppose him will suffer defeat, and sure destruction. And Psalm 2 says he holds them in derision, uh, any who pursue folly and farce. So what does a king do with a traitor? What does a king do with a captured enemy? He condemns them. He puts them to death. They are judged. So by nature, you and I, in our natural state, are enemies. We're enemies of God. And so when Paul says here, since we have been justified by faith, past tense, we've experienced that there's something more to it. And that is that we now have peace with God. The, the king has made us reconciled to him. So we're no longer traitors at enmity with him. We're no longer his enemies. We're now welcomed in to his kingdom. 
when we use the word peace, some people mean it differently. One person said, I like this, peace is a brief glorious moment in history where everyone is standing around reloading. I like that. Is that what we mean? When we say peace, when we think of two countries in a time of peace, we think that, okay, well, they're, they're having freedom from or cessation of war and hostilities. So peace is the condition of two nations or a nation or community that is not at war with another. So when Paul says here, we have that. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. He doesn't mean this, that God is appeased for a moment while he's reloading. Okay, that's not what he means. It means we are now, you are now in Christ forever and fully reconciled with the King of Kings. Through Christ's work on our behalf, the war has not been postponed. No, the work has ended. So you and I need not fear condemnation. If that's not worth an amen, then let's just leave today. Look ahead at verses 9 through 11. We're going to study this in a few weeks. He says, since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. You're not saved just from, we'll get into this. You're not saved just from your sins. You're saved from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we're reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So you and I, we were God's enemies, but now because of Christ, we have peace with God, an end to the hostility, and thus no more fear of destruction. Nothing compares with the power of experiencing peace with God. I can think of no greater blessing to know my sins are forgiven. I'm now reconciled with the Father. I don't have to fear destruction, condemnation. I have peace with God. And notice that Paul says, this is ours through Jesus Christ. Think of how much peace is connected with Jesus. I like what Thomas Watson said on that note. He said, God the Son is called the Prince of Peace. He came into the world with a song of peace. The song was on earth, peace to men, Luke 2.14. He went out of the world with a legacy of peace. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you, John 14. Christ's earnest prayer was for peace. He prayed that his people might be one. Christ not only prayed for peace, but bled for peace. Colossians 1.20 says, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Watson says, as he prayed for peace, so he paid for peace. See, this peace is, is yours. It's ours. It is what faith is produces. We have this because we've been justified. Now, if that isn't good enough, there's a second blissful consequence, and that's privilege. Now, obviously, that word is a loaded word today. You hear about white privilege or certain types of privilege, and don't get triggered when you hear a word like that. We don't have to lose the redemptive aspect of the word. Don't get lost in how it's improperly used. What we mean here is that the believer is privileged or has an advantage with many things, as we opened our worship gathering this morning with Psalm 103, the psalmist there, David said, remember, he said, bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. In other words, intentionally recount, recall, remember. Don't forget what it means to be in right relationship with God. Bless him. Why? Well, he forgives your iniquity. He heals your diseases. He redeems your life from the pit. He crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. And I love this. He satis satisfies you with good so that you are 
renewed. And so according to Paul, there are in this text at least two privileges that the believer has to enjoy. And that is in verse two, God's grace and God's glory. Look at verse two with me. He says, through him, through Jesus, we've also, in addition to having peace with God, we've also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Now, I'm going to have you highlight or circle or underline a couple words in this section. So um, please underline, first of all, the word access here. Would you guys circle that word? Access. Now, the, the Greek word that Paul uses for access is the, is, he's the only one in the New Testament who uses that word. So we have to kind of look maybe outside of the Bible to see the Greek usage of that word to understand it a little bit more. Um, the Greek word means to bring or to introduce. And I don't know if you've ever done this, husband, but you go to introduce your wife to someone, but you forget their name. Has that ever happened to you? You're like, hey, honey, I want to introduce you to my brother in Christ. <laughs> and you're hoping your wife will do the rest of the like, damage control for you, right? So she'll go, oh, great to meet you. I'm Jen. What's your name? Right. You're hoping, hint, hint, um, that, that they'll help you out in that. That's not the idea here. The idea is not a quick handoff, like quick introduction. See, other Greek writers outside of the Bible would use this word when you introduce someone to royalty. When you're brought in to give an access to royalty, that's not a flash-in-the-pan moment. There's honor and there's, there's, there's you know, a sense of, of worth and power. And this verb is in the perfect tense. So the idea here is the perfect tense, which means it's an ongoing result of a past action. Something happened in the past and today you're still benefiting from it. So what is happening here? Paul is saying, through Christ, we have now been introduced to grace. But this isn't a short interview. Paul uses this word in Ephesians twice, where in Ephesians 2.18, he says, for through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Remember that section, we both, he's saying the Jew, the Gentile, that wall has been divided, it's been destroyed. So there's not two churches, like the Jewish church and then the non-Jewish church. We both have access in one spirit to the Father. There's not two Holy Spirits. Well, the Jews get one Holy Spirit. The Gentiles get the other. There's not, well, he's father to the Jew, father to the Gentile, and, and you get to call him by different names. No, there's one spirit, and we all have been granted access to the Father. There's that word access. A few verses later, Ephesians 3.12, Paul says, In whom Christ Jesus our Lord, we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. Isn't that great? So through Christ and in Christ, we have confident access. We have a sure standing in what? He says, in the grace of God. John Stott says, you could translate Romans 5.2 this way. Through him, we have obtained our introduction into this grace in which we've taken our stand. So you can circle the word grace now. The word grace, of course, uh, means God's free and unmerited favor. But this idea of being in the perfect tense is that we begin with grace. Hey, here's the introduction. You have access. But that access isn't going to be spoiled or cut short. Hey, sorry, the president's got other things to do. The, the king's busy. You, you can have this grace at conversion, and, and that's enough. You're, you're good just at the beginning. But, but now you move on to works. No, the idea is that I begin with grace and I continue with grace. In other words, we've been granted an ongoing introduction to the grace of God, which began at conversion and continues until our glorification. And this is not something that you as a Christian will lose access to. 
well, I'm, I'm going to forfeit grace because of my sin. Well, we all sin. And yet the scriptures tell us we can approach the throne of grace with confidence. It's not something you lose access to like Netflix when you forgot to pay that month or you've lost your password and now you're blocked. Isn't that frustrating? There's nothing more frustrating to me than being blocked through some dumb password. And when I go on my Mac, there's a little app called Keychain Access. I type in a password for that, which is weird, but once I have it, now I've got all access to all of my passwords. John Stott says it this way, we do not fall in and out of grace like courtiers who may find themselves in and out of favor with their sovereign or politicians with the public. No, we stand in it for that is the nature of grace. Nothing can separate us from God's love. We have the privilege in Christ, our inheritance as joint heirs with Christ to have access into grace. So why are we on our phones trying to order Uber Eats when the meal's been prepared for us? See, Barclay puts it this way. Jesus, I don't have it on the screen, but he says, Jesus ushers us into the very presence of God. He opens the door for us to the presence of the King of Kings. And when that door is open, what do we find? We find grace, not condemnation, not judgment, not vengeance, but the sheer undeserved incredible kindness of God. That's what we have because of our access we have access to grace. But there, there's a second aspect to this privilege, according to Paul. Not only do we have access to grace, but notice, he says, and, verse 2, we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. So, we also have the sole advantage over all mankind to be those who can say, I rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Now, we talk about glory you can circle that word, highlight it. You probably highlight all the words, actually, in this entire text. But we've already learned back from Paul in Romans 3.23 that, that all have sinned and fall short of what? They fall short of God's glory. So this is not something like we stumbled short. We did the high jump and we missed the mark. We tried to do the long jump and we fell in the sand. We tried in our effort to reach God's glory and we came up way short. And so this is not something we conjure up. I'm going to rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, but we're unconverted. I'm hoping in God's glory because I'm going to produce this in my own strength. It's like walking into the Super Bowl and your team is a team of third graders, right? It's time to forfeit. You're not going to win. So when Paul says hope here, we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. He doesn't mean hope in the way we've made it soft. Can we stop saying hope as if it's wishful thinking? Biblical hope is not wishful thinking. So we'll say things like, oh, I hope the weather's nice this weekend. Or I hope I get a raise one day. I hope the pastor doesn't tell any dad jokes this week. Too late. That's wishful thinking. And and that is not biblical hope. I like to call biblical hope a smiling expectation. So it's something that we're certain of. There's something that we expect. And because we expect it, we have joy. Uh, And we have a disposition uh, that says the object of my hope is greater than me. So in this case, the object of our hope, according to Paul, is the glory of God, the radiant splendor and weight of goodness and truth that embodies who God is and what he's done and what he will do. So this isn't wishful thinking rooted in our own splendor. This is a smiling expectation of what Habakkuk describes. Habakkuk says that the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the majesty and worth and power and awesomeness, the glory, if you would, 
The glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And we, we long for that. We hope for that. Not like, I wish that'll happen. I know it will happen. It's an expectation. And we of all people alone have the ability to rejoice in the hope of God's glory. You know, in some ways, the world has already been exposed to his glory. We've learned this from Romans 1, that in a general way, the heavens declare what? The glory of God. We know that Christ is a special revelation of God's glory. It says that he came manifesting God's glory, the glory of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth, John 1.14. We know when his hour had come to go to the cross in the garden, Jesus prayed, Father, glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. So we see in a general way, creation and Christ, the Word made flesh, special, God has revealed his glory. Uh, but Romans 8 teaches that we will be glorified with him and we'll be reminded that our present sufferings are not worth. They're like lightweights compared to the heaviness of his glory, which is incomparable. And so in the end, cre creation is going to be renewed and the resurrected will experience the liberty of God's splendor. Notice Romans 8.20 says, in hope, there's that word, that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So as those who have been born again, we have a past justification, we have a present grace, and we have a future glory. We not only have peace with God, as if that wasn't great enough, but we also have privileges in his kingdom. But that isn't it. We could stop there, but there's more. And there's a third blessing we have, which is perspective. Now with this one, we should put a little asterisk. There's perspective but there's a catch. So uh, notice verse three. He says, not only that, those are good enough. We can stop there. Yes and amen. Time to sing and dismiss. But he says, but we rejoice in our, wait, is that the right word? We rejoice in our sufferings. What is going on? Is this a typo? It, maybe, maybe the Bible translators got this one wrong. No, no, no. We rejoice in our blessings. Thank you, Lord, for this new car, for this new job. Thank you, for all that you've blessed me with. I rejoice in that. No, he says here, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces, here's that word again, hope. And hope does not put us to shame. Now, I want to define a few more words together. Um, the word sufferings, I'd like you to circle that. And the word here for sufferings, really a more accurate word would be tribulations. Because we use suffering, and, and we use it in a soft way, guys. We, when we say suffering, we mean I only get two bars in this part of town, right? I'm suffering. Uh, uh, oh, the Wi-Fi is not working. I'm suffering, right? That, that's not the idea here. But the Greek word means affliction or trouble that causes pressure. And it's often connected, this word is connected with God's people, especially suffering in the end or before the end. And so this suffering is not just going through turmoil, I can't get the car to start. This is opposition and persecution from a hostile world, from the diabolical kingdom that we just referenced. But notice Paul says, we rejoice <laughs> in our sufferings. Not only do we experience peace and privilege, but we also have the honor of rejoicing in trouble. Remember on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said in Matthew 5, as he was teaching, he said, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. And that's a very important clause there. 
throughout church history, that's been fulfilled, has it not? Think of the 2,000 years of reviling and persecuting and all the evil that's been falsely uttered against God's people. But it's, it's on his account, not just because you're a jerk, but, but you're blessed when you're persecuted on his account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, there are many people listening to that sermon, the disciples most closely, and Peter was definitely taking sermon notes on that day because in his first epistle, later on, 1 Peter 4.12, he wrote this, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something uh, strange or alien or foreign were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Peter was listening that day, right? So we rejoice in our sufferings, not because we're sadistic and you have pain, bring it on, but because through tribulation, we have the vantage point of seeing God's glory made manifest in and through our lives. We have the perspective that we would not have had if we were just living an ease-filled life. I love what J.I. Packer says. He says that, that fellowship with the Father and the Son is sweetest and Christian joy the greatest when the cross is heaviest. I love that. And I've experienced that in my own life. My sister, who was born deformed, lived only six months. But in speaking with my mom, I was only about three or four years old. Uh, later, talking with my mom about my little sister, whose name was Grace, uh, talking with my mom, she was like, the time in our life where we experienced the greatest trouble and hardship and the greatest joy, the greatest you know, intimacy with Christ was when we were kind of going through that trial. Uh, one of our dear sisters in Christ came up to me after uh, first service and said, it's kind of like childbirth. And I was like, what do you mean? She's like, well, you go through the, the pain of natural childbirth and you're enduring that pain knowing what's coming and it's worth the pain it's worth the suffering it's worth the the agony and the screaming because what it produces is something glorious and ultimately what Paul is saying here is that we're not excited that we're suffering we're excited that we're going through tribulations because his glory is being manifested in our life there's something that's coming that's worth it well then Paul uses the word endurance notice that word um that is a critical Greek word. The Greek word here is hupomone, and it means to, it means to remain under. But, but not in the sense where you're just like the Christian muscling through the suffering, and you're just laying down in the road like, trample on me, God. No, that's not the idea. The idea is that you, hupomone is where you're patiently enduring adversity, and you're meeting it head on. Like, bring it on. Let's do this. And you're willing to overcome obstacles. So, so hupomone is not like, whoa, I'm surprised by trials. No, it's like, it's like geared up and ready for trial. Uh, David Gusick said it this way. I love this. A runner must be stressed to gain endurance. Sailors must go to sea. Soldiers go to battle. For the Christian, tribulation is just part of our Christian life. I've said it this way. We don't need more knights in shining armor. We need knights in battered armor, right? Because you've gone out and fought the battle. Uh, and so Endurance is, is incredibly important. Now, there's another important word in our text, the word for character. And the word for character is a word that you would use for metal that had gone through a fire and all the impurities had been burned away because of it. So it means being proven genuine after being tested. Uh, isn't that a great definition of character? 
So we would say that product is tested and true. And character is not something that you can manufacture or mimic. Like, yeah, that guy's got character. If he really doesn't have character, it's going to be proven eventually, right? So, so character is something that long-term is proven through trial. Trial and error, it's been tested, it's been proven genuine. Spurgeon said that the greatest blessing that God has given us in this life is health, only second to sickness. I like that. Only second to sickness. In other words, well, Thomas Watson said, a sickbed teaches more than a sermon. So you go through trials, you endure the trial, specifically tribulation from you know, opposition for being a Christian. And when we endure through that, it produces character in a way that the blessed life never really could. So true affliction will prove the believer. And Paul says, for that we should rejoice. We rejoice that we've been proven. Uh, but in the midst of this trial and tribulation, notice that Paul says there's one last thing that's being produced in the believer's life, and that's hope. That's hope. And notice verse 5. He says, hope does not put us to shame. Another translation says, hope does not disappoint. Be, why? Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. Hope does not put us to shame. Why not? Well, we hope in many things. We are certain of many things. Our expectation is in many things. But like we said last week about faith, if the object of our hope is not great, then it's going to disappoint. It's going to fail us. So we put our hope, our certainty, my 401k is going to hold me through retirement. And then the stock market disappoints you. Or we hope, i putting my hope in the spirituality of my, my leaders. <laughs> And then you, you hang out with your leaders and you're greatly disappointed. My hope is in my faithful spouse. My hope is in the, you know, uh, effectiveness of, of my job or the stability of my car, whatever it is. And we realize these things disappoint us. They put us to shame. Why? Because they're not great. On the contrary, what we hope for is fulfilled because God pours his love into our hearts by his spirit. So he, it doesn't disappoint us. Why? Because we benefit from a love relationship that's not theoretical. It's intimate, and even we don't like this word, but it's experiential. In other words, God's love is not something way out here that we test in theory. Paul says, no, it has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. Some people misread this verse and they say, the Holy Spirit's been poured into my heart. That's not what it says. It says the Holy Spirit has poured the love of God into our heart. And one person anonymously said, notice that God has not sent a sense of love from a distance. He's not sent love to us. He has brought it. This is something we experience with the Spirit of God in our hearts. And therefore, hope does not put us to shame. Well, I'm expecting the glory of God, but it's going to let me down. No, this is something that will never put us to shame. And God has intimately shared his love with us through the spirit who is near, who is in us, who's upon us as Christ followers. What a glorious truth. It's like almost hard to read through this text without just being stirred by, in our affections by what God has given us. We have peace with the Father. We have a great privilege with grace and glory, and we have a perspective in the midst of trouble. Now, in two weeks, we're going to dive deeper. So I give you homework right now. Your homework is next week, we're going to um, have a special Mother's Day service for our moms. So that'll be a great time together. 
We'll be covering some really interesting perspective for moms next week. Uh, and so I want to encourage you uh, to come out and bring mom, bring, um, bring your family. It'll be a great time. But in two weeks, we're going to look at the rest of uh, uh, this section because we kind of paused. Really, this section, uh, the train of thought goes all the way to verse 11. So um, uh, for homework, I want you to read verses 6 through 11, where you see the, what he's talking about here, the love of God, how far that goes uh, in its application. So we'll do that in two weeks. You guys read ahead. Now, for our purposes today, we're going to take communion in just a minute. Uh, but I want us to apply this text as if we couldn't apply it more. Um, three ways that I want us to bring application. So if you're taking note, number one, I think it's pretty clear that we come to God on his terms. What do I mean by that? Well, it's God, not man, who determines the conditions for peace and privilege. So I don't set the terms for God and then expect him to agree. I don't make peace with God. Barge in, I've got, I need access to the Father. I'm going to barge into the busy person's office and just expect them to give me access. I'm going to declare peace with God. That's not how it works. Many people foolishly, erroneously, falsely think that that's how they are. Well, I'm good. I'm good with God. The man upstairs and me, we're tight. I'm, I'm good with the big guy. And you go, oh, cool. So you've, you've trusted Christ. You've, you've placed all of your hope and your faith in Jesus and his redemptive work for you. And they're like, oh, no. I mean, I believe Jesus existed, but I've, like, God gets me. Like, we have kind of a thing going on. Like, like good. This little thing going on. It's like, well, hold on. You don't make peace with God. You've been given peace with God. You don't make access with the Father. You've been granted access. In fact, Jeremiah pointed out that people were telling everyone in his day, peace, peace, and there wasn't peace. Imagine that. Some who believe all is well, even as you stand directly under the frightful wrath of Almighty God, impending doom, and you think because you went to church that you're good. And you, you never even, you're blindsided. You never even see the judgment coming. But just because you don't see the state troopers' lights behind you because you have dismantled all of the mirrors of your car, that does not negate the fact that eventually justice is coming. And so we don't barge into God's presence on our own merit. We're granted access and we're granted an end to the enmity by a gracious God. And let me add this. For those of you, I like to joke and say recovering Catholics, okay? For those of you who came out of a Catholic background, you are not granted access by Mary or any other saint. There's only one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, and Christ has provided full access to the Father. And that access will not be obstructed and it won't be interrupted. You don't have to pray in Old English to get access. Let me do it Certain, let me do the spiritual kind of dance to get into. No, you have been granted his grace and his glory. So stand in it. And that's really our second application point, And that is to stand firm in the grace of God. Doesn't that seem like a contradiction? Stand firm in what? In the grace, in the grace of God. Uh, in his commentary on Romans, William Newell describes seven attributes of what this looks like. And I like these. These are, these are good to kind of consider and build upon. But how do I, as a believer, stand firm in the grace of God? He says, the proper attitude of man under grace, first is to believe and consent to be loved while unworthy. That's the great secret. Second, to refuse to make resolutions and vows, for that is to trust in the flesh. We stand in grace. Three, to expect to be blessed, though realizing more and more lack of worth. 
That's standing in grace. Number four, to testify of God's goodness at all times, standing in grace. Number five, uh, to be certain of God's future favor, yet to be ever more tender and conscious toward him. To rely on God's chastening hand as a mark of his kindness. He says, a man under grace, if like Paul, has no burdens regarding himself, but he has many about others. That's a great kind of primer. What does it mean to stand in the grace of God? We've been given this access. Nothing can separate us from his love. So knowing that his grace is unmerited, unearned favor, we reject any idea of trying to earn it or trying to receive it through merit. We know deserving his grace by definition is not grace. We don't deserve it. Uh, And so we receive it and we stand firm in it. Uh, Finally, number three, if you're taking note, cherish the formation. What do I mean by that? Well, we all want hope, don't we? We all want certainty and expectation that brings a smile. We want hope, a hope that doesn't disappoint us. But notice in the text, we have to work backwards. So to get hope, what produces hope according to verse 4? Yell it out. Character. Okay, that's great. Yeah, I could use some character. How do I get character? What produces character? Work backwards. Endurance or perseverance. Okay, fair enough. Yeah, I could probably use some endurance in my life. Well, how do I get that? What produces endurance? Work backwards again. Oh, 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 time out. See, the person who suffered and endured, right? John Piper says, don't waste your suffering. You could suffer. That doesn't mean you've endured. You just lay down. Oh, I guess cancer beat me. Right? And I know that's not the suffering Paul's referring to, the enduring. He's talking more obviously about tribulations we suffer. But you could just say like, huh, the government says don't go to church, so I guess we just give up. I just, we just, we just, we're not going to endure. No, we, we suffer. We have tribulation from the diabolical kingdom against God's kingdom, and we say, no, we're going we're gonna to suffer and endure. We're going to grow in our character, and we are going to be the ones who experience true hope. So, Don't shortchange the process and recoil against tribulation. Don't take the exit ramp of ease when God wants you to endure suffering. Allow him to build character in you and walk in true hope. So cherish the formation. Let the trial, whatever it is, that you're suffering on behalf of Christ, let that drive you to Christ as you experience the love of God shed abroad in your heart through the Spirit who dwells within you. But listen, this doesn't happen alone. You see, guys, this is a we section of Scripture. Chapter 5, verse 1 through 11, has we mentioned 15 times. It has our and us mentioned four times each. This is what the covenant community of grace has experienced together because of the work of Christ. So we now together suffer and advance God's kingdom, not fighting with him, but for him. We're called out of darkness into wonderful light with other image bearers who collectively we are the light of the world. And we, we, plural, we suffer, we endure, we allow character to be built in us, and we experience hope collectively as a people of grace. So because we've been reconciled to God and received by God, we can rejoice in our sufferings no matter what we're suffering through. Because listen, believer, you can't suffer out of God's grace. Isn't that great? We stand in it, and our standing will never be in jeopardy. So hope doesn't disappoint us. So, child, you've been adopted into a new family. Don't sit in the room trying to conjure up your own works to bless yourself. 
receive the blessing that our adoptive family provides, the blessing that the Father has given us, the peace we have with him, the privilege we have, and of course, the perspective in sorrow and trouble. Amen? Amen. Father, thank you for your grace today. We receive it. We don't work for it. We work from it. We're, we're ready to be busy about doing good works, knowing we're not saved by them, but we're saved unto them. We have the privilege of joining with you and advancing your kingdom. But Lord, we thank you for what we have in Christ. It's not in our own self-righteousness and our own goodness. It's not in birthright. But Lord, as those who've been born again, we now have that from our elder brother. We're now joint heirs with Christ. We thank you for what we have, the blessings that we have, these blissful consequences. And Lord, as we now turn our attention to the work of Christ at Calvary, as we prepare our hearts to receive the bread and the cup uh, that represent your body broken and your blood poured out. Lord, we this morning acknowledge we're unworthy, but we thank you that you are of infinite worth and infinite glory. And you stepped out of heaven and came and put on humanity, died in our place and rose again for our justification. We thank you for that today. We glory in it. We relish it. We worship you because of it. And Lord, we thank you that we have this privilege to come before you, remembering you as we receive your work on our behalf. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Shoreline Church meets every Sunday at 9 a.m. and 10.30 a.m. at the Port on Lena Road. You can get more content and more information by visiting thisisshoreline.com. If you have any questions or any prayer needs, please don't hesitate to email us at info at God bless you.